0: What we seemed to want from our actors were larger-than-life people, extraordinary, fabulous sort of animals, exotic, Mm. not necessarily beautiful, but but, but extraordinary in some sort of way, uh, with an extraordinary presence, Mm. and as my grandmother would say, great personalities.
1: Simon Callow has had an incredible career as an actor, from fringe to Hollywood, from gay sweatshop to merchant ivory, with memorable roles in Four Weddings and a Funeral and Shakespeare in Love, and as Mozart in the stage version of Amadeus. He also describes himself as a full-time writer with biographies on a variety of geniuses from Wagner to Dickens and Orson Welles. A director, opera producer able to turn his talents to song and dance, I feel privileged to be taking tea at Calford's Oriens with this all-round cultural powerhouse. Simon Callow, it's a a delight to see you here. Thank you so much for coming across London. (laughs) You've you a huge amount of time. Uh, You've just closed an immensely successful show, I think, at Anything Goes at the Barbican. Yeah. How's that? It must have been amazing to be in front of a live audience after this imposed hiatus.
0: Yes, I I had actually done a couple of things during the brief gaps between the lockdowns. I'd Mm. managed to do a couple of things. That was extraordinary in itself because what happened was really a feeling of great shyness between the audience and the actors, a kind of embarrassment, like like trying to pick up a love affair that had <laughs> sort of, for some reason, fizzled out. But it was wonderful, because as soon as you got together again, it, it, you remembered what it was all about. Mm. Um, and the, the appetite of people for stories mm. that make the universe make sense for a while is just immense, and it's visceral.
1: And I, I suppose everything you do is about telling a story. I mean, you're a
0: prolific writer.
1: Where does the, the storytelling come from? Was your was your mother a brilliant... Did she tell you stories at night?
0: No, not at all. She used to read to me from the Daily Telegraph.
1: Did she? <laughs> Politics?
0: Yes. Because she th- wanted me to stop being a child as soon as I possibly could. That was not what she wanted as a, a companion, <laughs> because it was only her and me. So she tried to get my IQ up as quickly as possible, you know. But... My grandmother was a wonderful, my, her mother was a wonderful storyteller. My grandmother was the sort of historian of the family. I mean, quite a lot of it was made up, but not quite as much of it as we thought. Subsequently, other members of the family who've been genealogists have, have actually found that the story she told was true. Uh, but it seemed so improbable because her husband, who was Danish, was um, a clown. A clown? A Danish clown.
1: How fascinating. Who
0: then became a ringmaster. And there oh. he met my great-grandmother, who was a bareback horse rider. That was the bit of the story How that we thought my grandmother. glamorous. Yes, isn't All it? Right. Yes. <laughs> I know. And she came from a... This I only discovered later. I don't think even my grandmother knew this, that she came from a long line of equestrians. Tournière, her name was Thérèse Tournière. And I've su- subsequently discovered for myself that the Tournières were the great equestrian family in the end of the 19th century, the early 20th century. They, uh, In the various hippodromes, they were extremely famous. And her grandfather, my great-grandmother's grandfather, opened a hippodrome in St. Petersburg. And the Tsar was so grateful for the pleasure that he'd given in this hippodrome, that he gave him as a parting present Napoleon's horse.
1: No, this has got to go into a book.
0: It will, it will.
1: And how would you write her story? Would you turn it into a novel or would you write it as part of your own memoir?
0: I think I have to do it as as part of the memoir. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to write about The years until I became an actor, that's all. Mm. And it's really them that I want those extraordinary lives of all those women. I was entirely surrounded by women as a a child. I mean, really, almost as if there'd been a sort of ban on men or or, or they'd been sort of picked off by snipers because my parents broke up when I was 18 months old. My grandfathers had both died before I was born and my great-grandfathers had both died before I was born. But my great-grandmother on my, my father's side was still around. And her sister, my great-aunt, Toto and Titi, they were French. <laughs> and her grandmother was called Meme, the, the old lady. A terrifying old lady, <laughs> bearded old thing. Uh, Black. I had to speak French to You must have been
1: hugely cosseted and spoilt by all these women, or, or...? Not exactly.
0: No, it was more complicated than that the grandmother vera who but who was known by everybody as mater, was the absolute emotional focus of my life definitely she adored me i adored her and we just played together that's all i mean it was just an absolutely wonderful relationship much frowned on by everybody else <laughs> by uh, you know we had too much fun
1: but not having a father must have been did you look for i think you did find your father again didn't you go and live with him in later life or well, no, later he, childhood? In
0: later childhood, yes. Yeah. He, he left when I was 18 months old. He went to Africa. Well, to
1: find his fortune, to seek his fortune?
0: Uh, well, to go back to Africa, mm-hmm. because I was conceived in Africa mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they had lived in Africa after the war. And he was in the North Africa landings and sort of fell in love with Africa. I don't think he really fell in love with Africa. He fell in love with having servants mm-hmm. and he fell in love with limitless cheap gin, he was a party boy. But then my mother, would, I think they were very much in, in love and uh, uh, she went out to join him right at the end of the war. I mean, the moment she could, she was out there with him and then she became pregnant with my sister who died, who died at the, uh, at the age of 18 months. So then they decided to have me and, and this time they came back once she was pregnant, and tried to live in a bedsit. You know, after I was born, the three of us just kind of rubbing along together. And my father was just—it was just uh, intolerable to him. He'd known something so much better, more a glamorous and indulgent life. So um, he said, "I'll go back to Africa." And eventually, he did come back to England and just told my mother that it was all over. And uh, she was a Catholic and she couldn't accept that. And she was really in love with him and she thought they were really in love with each other. Mm -hmm. So then uh, I saw a ton of little bits of him, very occasionally. And it was a terrific surprise when I was nine to get this letter from him. I remember it, an aerogram, you know, those blue aerograms saying, it's all been a terrible mistake, we should get together again. And my mother said to me, well, He's still my husband, you know, because he always will be until he dies or until later. So we're going. So we went to Africa. <laughs> we were going to live there. It was a three-day flight. We had to stop to refuel in Rome and in Wadi Haifa. Mm. And then finally we arrived at Nairobi. And then he drove us down to what was then Northern Rhodesia, to a tiny, tiny little place called Fort James. That no, we then discovered, because he wanted to get a divorce, which he couldn't do in those days. You couldn't get a unilateral divorce.
1: I see. How horrible! So...
0: so we spent that terrible couple of weeks. I think it was no more than that, probably two or three weeks, in which it was quite apparent he locked down all the rooms. We couldn't go into them. Uh, he told the servants not to obey my mother, which is a shocking. Thing shocking. In Africa, thing. that's a really shocking. really
1: uh... to undermine someone like that. Yeah.
0: So we, we, we departed and threw our lot in with a, a, another family which was fatherless because he was an alcoholic who was drying out somewhere. But it was weird because it was suddenly a, a big family. There were four kids.
1: Did you enjoy that chaos of big family life?
0: I was daunted by it. Yeah. But I sort of did eventually get get into it a bit. But uh, You
1: were nine, so did you understand what was going on where you tried to piece it all together? Did you? It's been quite a time of huge confusion. It was.
0: Mm. It was a very curious time, my time in Africa. It was altogether very. Because then I was sent to a school in Grahamstown, which is on the Cape Coast, a very English town. Mm. Very. Mm-hmm. And so, so I took the train all on my own to three days of train. I mean, with other boys, but nobody's supervising us. So we did all sorts of bad things on the train, <laughs> uh, including trying to, as we went across the Victoria Falls, rocking on the side of the train to try to <laughs> knock it off into the... I mean, my God, almighty. Yes. Um, but, uh, but as so often, the money ran out for, um, you know, my education there. So I came back and by then my mother had moved to Osaka to become the secretary to the tender board of the, I suppose, the Board of Trade or something like that. And we stayed there for three years until she worked out her notice, which meant that she could then get six months, not notice, but her tour, so she could then get six months' holiday. That was the deal. So then I was back in England, which is all I ever dreamt of, coming back to England. Did
1: you, you, you dreamt of England when you were in Africa? I weren't? used to
0: dream of Streatham High Road. That's how bad it was. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I was going to say, that then it was the oratory, was it, after that, when you yeah. came back? then
0: it was the oratory, yes, which was not a, a good school then. It became a very good school, but it had a very repressive and, and surly headmaster, a very conservative and Scottish disciplinarian of a very...
1: Interesting. And at that time, and you—I mean, you always wanted to be a writer rather than an actor, didn't you, to start with?
0: I did then. Yes, I did. I did indeed.
1: So this incredible career that has taken you from fringe to Hollywood—you've had—you've as we were talking your your biographies on many geniuses from Dickens to Wagner. Yeah, yeah,
0: they're all geniuses. It's true. I haven't written of anybody who's less than a genius. you're attracted to geniuses yes yes i suppose people who are not geniuses need not apply (laughs) to to be uh, written about by me Mm. extraordinary personalities have really that that's really the legacy of my grandmother because she she was such a believer in personality Mm. she thought that was everything Mm. and that um intellectual achievements and so on were were sort of rather unimportant what mattered was the interchange between people and your ability to to charm people and, to, and she, she was irresistibly charming. She was whew, a big woman, and I I know well because I had the job swabbing her down from time to time <laughs> <Did you? laughs> because she had arthritis rather badly, and it was very hard for her to. actually so I I you know get a bucket and it was like sort of washing the car on Sunday morning.
1: So obviously very comfortable in the company of women.
0: Very. Yes, yes, yes. I have never had any difficulty in communicating with women. I wouldn't want to oversimplify that. It was uh, it's not that I understand women or anything like that. It's more that uh, it was the it was the, the the air in which I grew up. You know, I, I just I was very familiar with women on a hourly day-to-day basis there was there wasn't any particular glamour about women Mm. they were they were you know
1: part of the furniture of your life in
0: a way they were yeah exactly but all the women were every single one of them was as different from the others as could be Mm. my aunt was a fierce woman absolutely fierce funny but fierce famously when i went to the grocer's with her she would say uh, to some hapless the assistant anyway should say, "Are you serving, or are you purely ornamental?" <laughs> <laughs> it was really Aunt Agatha kind of time. Okay. But my mother was not as as bossy as that. But she was a very tricky woman. You you had to be careful what you said to her, and and and, and very single minded about certain things and fixations that she had, and very religious, and and so on.
1: Why do you think they're not such great characters, big characters anymore? Do we live in a society which doesn't? Give oxygen to personality in the way that
0: it used to. Yes, I think that is true. That's certainly true, for example, of acting yeah. and actors, that uh, what we seemed to want from our actors were larger-than-life people, extraordinary, fabulous sort of animals, exotic, mm. not necessarily beautiful, but but, but extraordinary in yeah. some sort of way, uh, with an extraordinary presence, mm. and as my grandmother would say, great personalities, you mm. know. And I think all of that began to take a kind of a bit of a hammering in the 60s with the new school of acting of, uh, you know, the that, that generation of Tom Courtney and, mm. and Alan Bates and all the rest of it. Albert Finney, who were pretty exotic, actually, yeah. by comparison with yeah. now. But, but by comparison with Laurence Olivier and Ralph yeah. Richardson, they were very, you know, tamped down in yeah. a way. Of course, it was a class thing mm. to some extent. And uh, then people began to resist the idea of acting that looked like acting, mm. you know. And the whole idea of acting as a, as a craft, as something to you worked at, and the elements of acting physically, mm. vocally... And in terms of your capacity to communicate, and I went to a drama school, which is a very radical school in its day, the Drama Centre now, alas, closed. But uh, it uh, worked on us expanding our instruments so that you were conscious of the different sensations and the whole of the movement work was divided up into movements like uh, floating or pressing or punching, so as you were educated in in sensation. And that, I think, along with many other things, is nowadays frowned upon. On the whole, I think the big idea is that you are you, you stand on stage as you, you testify to your lived experience. Uh, The imagination is given very, very little space these days. My natural instinct is stage Mm. acting, and it's absolutely true that it's a different there's a different energy. Mm. And it's not to say that you can't be loud or big, mm. but it's just w- how you're directing the energy. And if you're directing it towards a camera, then it, it, it it's not the same sensation for you as an actor as if you're doing it at the Olivier Theater or, or, mm. or even bigger theaters. Mm. It was very interesting in the musical recently Done that mostly although I did sing and I did dance, not a great deal. <laughs> uh, I'm glad to say because of my knees, but You're very fit. T- t- we
1: can we can tell.
0: Yes, yes, but my God, I'm I'm crumbling as as everybody. <laughs> well, you don't years. look crumbly at all. <laughs> well in it's all inward, but but the knees are completely No, I haven't had any anything replaced. I've been injected for various things with the injections.
1: In the, in the knee. Experience. yeah. You haven't been injected in Botox injections or anything N- so, no, such no, as no. that. It, it, no. it,
0: there wouldn't be any point. Really,
1: <laughs> yeah. I think. Um. I think you look fantastic. I think you look sort of better as an older man, actually. If you don't
0: mind me saying. I think that's true. Actually, I, I think I, I have grown uh, better looking. <laughs> I was quite an odd looking. Uh, when I look at photographs of myself as a as a young man, I was quite odd looking. And I tell you something very strange is that just before we were going to shoot a room with a view, I had quite a big scooter uh, accident in Greece. I was dragged, The felt the bike went up in the air, the tarmac just ran out suddenly, the bike went up in the air, it was at night, and uh, it fell on top of me, and the back wheel kept going round, I was dragged over the, the tarmac, and, uh, uh, thank God, picked up by some people who took me to a hospital, and so on. And, um, uh, I got this huge, huge scar, and and, and then the uh, doctor, who was roused from his bed and, uh, in the middle of the night on Good Friday, God, I was not best pleased at all. Uh, uh, picked all the all the gravel and grit out of my out of my face, but said, "I can't give you an injection because it'll uh, tighten the skin, and uh, it, it, so it won't work with the stitches." And he put like fifteen stitches around here. And I I actually genuinely think that improved my appearance. Well, a little bit of scarring. Well, not so much of scarring. It sort of realigned (laughs) something. It it pulled back my eyes or something. I don't know what. But uh, I will uh, graciously (laughs) accept that uh, I do look better than I used to. (laughs) So
1: tell me, is there a role that you've played where you felt really proud of?
0: Yes, there are a couple, actually. Right at the beginning of my career, the first thing that... uh, Got me noticed was um, a play called Schippel, which was a, actually adapted from a German play, and I played a crown prince in it. And I do think I invented a kind of comic energy for this man, and and it, it won me plaudits, you know, and uh, and got me going really this this part. And I loved doing it. I had an instinctive sense of the style of the of the piece, and uh, yeah, that was a great thing. Then. Um, later the play I did for Gay Sweatshop the the play called Passing By Mm. that was a totally different kind of performance I I wasn't playing anybody extravagant or or titanically energetic or anything I was just playing a guy who fell in love with another guy and uh, that was a a wonderful experience on many levels because it was wonderful to be able to Mm. be as open as that about something that people had warned one to keep under wraps, you know.
1: Had you come out by then?
0: Oh yes, I was always out. I was never not out. Even at school. Oh really? Yeah, they used to say um, when there were boys talking you know, who they fancied, you know. Sort of, uh, <laughs> Marilyn Monroe and who I They said who do you fancy, Callow? And I said Cliff Richard. I did. <laughs> so did I. It was very sexy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they didn't mind. Nobody minded at really? all. Really? Not anybody. Not anybody. I never had any trouble.
1: From your mother, grandmother?
0: Oh, well, that was later. That, that I, I, I didn't come out to them. You see, that, that was the whole slow process of coming out. But uh, with my grandmother, with whom I had broken up for quite a long time, about four years, I, I just suddenly thought, this relationship is too dangerously all engulfing. And I pulled away from oh, her.
1: She must have been a bit heartbroken by it. She
0: was. And probably didn't understand it. And it was brutal of me. But that's, there is that in me. <laughs> I just did it for my survival.
1: Really? My you didn't want to survival. be consumed by this powerful personality? Well, I,
0: I knew that I, I, I was growing up. Yeah. And I was at university by then. Yeah. And I was... And there probably was an issue with sex as well was... Mm. How could I? It was such an intimate relation. And what, Mark she had no disapproval of gay people. What? Oh, no, of men, of women. She totally disapproved of lesbianism. But she was entirely understood because she was so attracted to men herself. I perfectly understand why one man would be attracted to another man because they're so attractive. attractive yeah. So it was then that I, 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 when I, my first West End job, the, the one in which I played that Crown prince, Larry Seacombe at the Prince of Wales Theatre. I turned up on her birthday, on a performance day, and, and, and just said, I, I didn't know whether I'd be even let into the house. My aunt said, Christ almighty, when you better come in. And then said, to my, I'll give your grandmother warm, warning. And she told her what had happened. My grandmother sort of got herself together, and then I came in. And um, we just embraced. It was all over. it was fine. I mean, uh, and, but, but she said to me, I suppose you've got a girlfriend. And so I said, no, I don't. And she said, <clears throat> you're not a homo, are you? And I said, yes. Because so my aunt dropped her whiskey at that point. She said, Christ almighty. Well, she said, you're an artist. And I suppose they all are really, aren't they? So I said, well, not all of them, but quite a lot. And so, so my grandmother said to me, well, far be it. From me, ever to deny anyone love.
1: You married uh, in twenty fifteen, didn't you? So, actually, not yep.
0: Ten years. Yes, 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 yes. And has that Sebastian? changed
1: the way you you feel you belong, or the way you the sense of your own identity, or anything?
0: No, but it's a, a relationship that is utterly grounded. It's mm. absolutely solid, and uh, I, I, I've, I've had rather a lot of. Fantastically good relationships, uh, or oh, well, fantastically <laughs> uh, interesting relationships, uh, some less good than others, but but always something wonderful in them and uh, very dramatic and exciting. But with Seb, there's just something so centred about it. We both understand love in the same way, because I was very passionate and reckless when I was young. But... I came to understand that what love is really about is, is about deep knowing, the other person. knowing the other person deeply, and of course yourself, but it's that, it's that it's not based on illusion. It's based on reality.
1: So would you, would you have been able to marry when you were younger? Did you know yourself well enough?
0: Oh, I wouldn't have married. Mm. I, I wouldn't have done if I could have done. Well, it's very hard to say, actually, because until it's really there and possible, mm. one doesn't didn't spend much time thinking about it. Uh, in fact, I thought, you know, I went through all the usual things about, oh, why imitate heteronormativity and all of that. But although it's true that I always had as an ideal, which is not the way things turned out but I had an ideal the sort of relationship the Britain and Piers had together mm-hmm. or the great Irish actor Michael McClearmor. the idea of a partnership which was both um, amorous and passionate but also professional or to do with making something together certainly mm. yeah
1: and and do you and no
0: not at all no no he works for Amazon and uh, knew little of the theater when uh, we got together but is constantly fascinated by it and engaged with it and uh, so so as i say it, it wasn't that kind of relationship but domestically we've found a, a wonderful way of being together uh, which is um you know we each contribute different things to the household and to mm. and to and to our lives you know we there's there's no tension between us there's no longing for something else
1: do you have any faith do you believe in god no.
0: No, I don't believe in God. I I sort of believe in the gods, Mm. but only on the understanding that that's a projection, accumulated insight in which our ancestors created these figures who answer to aspects of our being. No, I don't believe in that at all.
1: Do you have a spiritual life?
0: (laughs) I mean, I try to be emotionally honest. Mm. I do follow my intuition a lot. Mm. And that's a sort of spiritual element in a way. It's a sort of Zen has a lot to do with that. I'm very interested by religion. I think they're extraordinary inventions. But of Mm. course, they've all been, almost all of them, I don't think Zen has, but almost all religions have been Hijacked.
1: Yes, so true. So the idea of the uh, sense of an ending—I mean, in, as an actor and as a writer, sense of an ending is very important, isn't it? But in terms of our lives, and and you know, we spend all our life not thinking about what it's like to be old, don't we? Most mm-hmm. of
0: us. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, do you ever think about dying or death or I do.
0: getting old? Uh, now, quite a lot more, and I think perhaps having a, a much younger husband. Uh, and you know, knowing that I'm certainly not going to outlive him, you know, uh, uh, is quite a sobering thing. I'm not frightened, but I'm I'm nervous of what might happen to the body. You know, being dead doesn't frighten mm. me, but as the many people of have decay. said, yes, which is with us. You know, with me. I mean, this arthritis, mad just maddening. It's, uh, the arthritis is here. This is the worst of it. ah. It's in here, and uh, it means I can't quite pick things up. I, writing, actually writing, which I love doing. I, I Because, of, thanks to my grandmother, I, I've got a good hand. Mm. I can't really do it. Very beautiful anymore. hands, if you don't mind. So. Thank you. They're good hands, yes. They're very good hands. They're, that's true. I'll admit to that as well. Mm. There are plenty of parts of my body that I don't care for it at all, but uh, it's lucky that these are what you see all the time.
1: Very, very, yes, exactly. Very good for an actor because they, you, yeah. you, you they're quite speak expressive. With hands. Yes, yeah. Exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what are the good things about getting older? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, not caring so much what yes. people think yes. about you. That's a great plus. It is. And uh, I must say, when I turned 70, I sort of thought, as well as thinking this is ridiculous, I can't possibly be seventy because when, when when I was young, being sixty was already considered <laughs> yeah. to be doddery. Being but no longer, seven, no longer. No. And uh, although, in fact, most of my my mother was ninety-seven when she died. My grandmother uh, Vera was eighty-nine. Toto was about about that same age. Her mother was ninety-eight when she died. Ninety-eight in in, in the Your 60s family, Yeah. All the women, all the men just drop like flies. (laughs) No, really.
1: Well, Aristotle said that we reach our mental peak at 49. Have you you reached a peak? (laughs) Have you peaked yet? (laughs) Maybe you haven't peaked yet. Maybe your peak is still to come.
0: I think it is true. Uh, Now and then, I do some acting that I think is actually a lot better than what I've done in the past. And also, I think I'm writing better. Why I, I look at stuff
1: well, I suppose it's a muscle like any other. you get better at it the more you do it
0: I you? think so yeah mm. i I guess, yes, mm. and I think that's because i i I'm thinking better
1: mm. are you
0: yeah, why <laughs> because I know more, and because my taste is better,
1: yes, that's interesting do you do you find writing easier than? Acting?
0: Well, because up until now, all my writing has been non-fiction. Yes, I don't have the sort of writer's block problem. Lucky you. Yeah, because I don't create fictions. I mean, I, I, I shall. That's the next thing so that's, I'll oh, do. Ah, that's the next thing. Yeah. I,
1: I think you shall as well, listening to you. because
0: Yeah, I, I have stories to tell. No, I don't mean about my family. That's I'll write that uh, non-fictionally. But about the characters that I've been living with in my mind, you know, quite crowded So mm-hmm. And I've got to write the fourth volume, this world's fourth volume. It's just, I mean, the uh, fourth and final. is just.
1: How long will that take to write that?
0: Well, it's not the writing, really, that's the problem. It's the marinating of the material, <coughs> going through it again and letting it talk to me you know letting me see the connections never taking anything at face value just wondering what so what does that mean if that happens to your subject you know what does it do to you and how do you handle that
1: do you have to fall in love with your the people you write about no hmm. you have to be able to see them clearly yeah
0: i mean the 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 one that i Sort of fell in love with most of all it was Dickens, really. Did
1: you? Yeah. yeah. Complicated man, wasn't
0: he? Certainly was, but I'd just to spend time in his company. I would give limitless mm.
1: money. So, as you talking about the, our Last Supper, he would be at your table at your imagined Last Supper.
0: Yes, as I suppose would Oscar Wilde, of course, have to be, mm. and uh, Rembrandt. Rembrandt. And
1: Mozart, of course. And anyone alive?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, God, yes. I'd love to have Christopher Hampton and David Hare, really, at any mm-hmm. supper party that I ever gave. Just creative people, just uh, so very exciting. And
1: uh, What would you be eating?
0: Something cooked by Seb,
1: whatever. <laughs> And uh, what piece of music would you like to be remembered by at your funeral?
0: At my funeral. My grandmother was always planning her funeral music. And it grew and grew to such a thing. I said, but we'll be there for 15 hours. And she said, all right, well, we'll start editing. And (laughs) and then she'd add other things all like this. But for me personally, there's an aria, a concert aria that Mozart wrote, which is not all that well-known, called Voré Spiegarbi. I would like to speak. I mean, I would like to
1: Spire, explain.
0: Yes, I'd like to explain, and it's the most extraordinary, ravishing challenge to the female voice because it goes absolutely stratospheric. Mm. But the whole piece is is just a sound world of such utter perfection that, or. Um, Sure, but of course the the quintet, you know, the slow movement of the quintet, or maybe a, a song of Richard Strauss.
1: And uh, we'd have to end with a with a cup of tea because you've already told me that you measure your days out in. Yes,
0: it's true. We start with uh, the Darjeeling in the morning, is that right? No,
1: the green tea. The green tea in the morning.
0: Green tea, then Darjeeling, Mm -hmm. and then Ceylon Pico, Mm -hmm. Uh, golden Pico, and then Nilgiri, which is a slightly exotic one, and then end, I stop drinking tea at about 8 o'clock, I have to, at night, Uh, um, Assam, the heroine of tea. Whereas uh, Darjeeling, of course, is the champagne.
1: And on that note, I want to thank you very much, Simon Kellogg, for joining me today. If you've enjoyed today's show, you can hear more episodes by clicking follow, wherever you're listening to this, or simply searching The Third Act on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and YouTube. And if you think your friends would love to listen, please tell them about us. This episode was produced by Pete Norton and Holly Fisher and made possible by Oriens, luxurious residences that are redefining later living in the heart of Chelsea. I'm Catherine Fairweather, and I can't wait to join you next week for another episode of The Third Act.